Good morning. Please turn with me to Genesis 39, and I believe we are reading the whole chapter. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he had become a successful man, and he was in the house of this Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight, and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house, and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessings of the Lord was on all that he had, in house and fields. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in his house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her, to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day, when he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the house were in the house, she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came in to me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment beside her until his master came home. And she said to him the same story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, This is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is the word of the Lord. Joseph is one of the Bible's rare examples of faithfulness in hardship. It is very rare. You know, you think the Bible is full of faith heroes? Kind of, not really. Some of the best, you still, you know, David, Abraham, you can still point to all sorts of messes that they made. Joseph is quite unique in the Bible. Just consistent faithfulness in the worst hardship. 
But I'm not going to make this a be like Joseph talk. It's not what we're going to do today. As admirable as he was. This account forces us to wrestle with the fact that bad things happen to decent people. I really want to focus on that. Bad things happen to decent people. And where is God when that happens? Where is God when hardworking people of integrity suffer? The previous church where I served, there was a span of a few years uh, where it just felt like, this is how I personally felt, that I was cleaning up other people's messes, one mess after another, nonstop, continual, several messes at a time. And I found myself growing frustrated because in the midst, in the midst of the mess cleaning up, I didn't feel appreciated. I didn't feel like I was being honored or promoted. Uh, rather, more messes came. And I found that more problems just piled up, not only professionally for me, but personally as well in my own life. And so I grew bitter and I grew angry. And what I want to ask you is, can you relate to that? Have you ever looked at your life and seen a discrepancy, a tragic, gaping discrepancy between the good work that you are offering and the bad treatment that you're receiving? Can you relate to that? Have you ever cried out like the psalmist does in Psalm 13? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? You've prayed and you've pleaded with your creator, but you don't see any movement. You don't get an answer. You just get silence from God. Sometimes you've even put God to the test and said, well, if you're real, God, show me something, do something. And sometimes he does. But sometimes we say, God, show me something. And he doesn't show you anything. You just get silence. What you will discover as you begin to go deeper and deeper into Christianity, into biblical Christianity, you will discover that God's silence does not indicate his absence. God's silence in our hardships does not indicate his absence in our hardships. Now, just briefly, let me define what I mean by silence. It's different traditions of Christianity uh, talk about how God speaks differently. So let me just... Let me just clarify what I mean by God's silence. Here's what I mean. That he hasn't revealed to you what he's doing in a particular hardship or injustice that you're facing. God has been silent. You don't know what he's doing. You don't know why it's happening. But you're enduring it. And I think what you'll discover from Joseph's story is that though God was silent, he was present. And so today we're going to discover and talk about God's presence in Joseph's hardship. And we're going to talk about God's presence in your hardship. 
And listen to this. We're going to talk about God's presence in Jesus Christ's hardship. We're going to go there too. So the presence of God in Joseph's hardship and yours and in the hardship that Jesus faced. God was present in Joseph's hardship. It's abundantly clear. The narrator says more than once, the Lord was with Joseph. Although Joseph, not any fault of his own, family circumstances, dysfunctional. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Joseph is against his will forced into slavery. He is trafficked away from his home to another land, sold as a servant in Egypt. He's forced into servitude. Uh, But we discover in verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he became a successful man. Joseph in servitude prospered. And we see in verse 6, the narrator says, so he, meaning Potiphar, the Egyptian captain of the guard, this is a high-ranking official in Egypt. So Potiphar left all that he had in Joseph's charge And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Meaning Potiphar basically made Joseph his steward. That is a big deal. Joseph becomes the executor of Potiphar's estate. The only thing Potiphar is worried about is is his food, which really is an expression of saying his personal matters. Other than that, Potiphar didn't have to worry about a thing that was happening in his house, in his land, His staff, Joseph took care of all of it, and Joseph did an extremely good job of it. And it says, the Lord was with Joseph, not only in servitude, then he's falsely accused in a scandalous situation, and he's what? He's thrown into prison. And what we discover in prison, the the narrator uses very similar language to make a point. You see some consistency here because even in prison, it says the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners. It goes on to say that the keeper of the prison paid no very similar language here as in Potiphar's house. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. So from the frying pan into the fire, back into the frying pan again, right? Because he's, he's, he's left for dead and sold into slavery. And then from there, he ends up in prison. But in all of it, we see a consistency, Not simply Joseph's good behavior and hard work. God was with Joseph. We don't see God speaking in a revelatory sense to Joseph. Like like we do with his his dad and his great-grandfather. The Lord spoke verbally to Abraham, appeared to Abraham. The Lord spoke to Joseph. We don't see that. Sorry, the Lord spoke to Jacob. We don't see that happening in Joseph's life. We don't see the clouds opening and we don't see bushes burning and words audibly heard, at least not in this account. God's presence rather in Joseph's life is manifest through providence. Providence is important because by providence, God directs all that happens in the universe and in your life. Providence is simply uh, the idea, it's a theological term, it's the idea that the universe and our lives are not ruled by chance, are not ruled by fate, but are ruled by God. 
who has good purposes for his glory and for our benefit. And you see providence all over the place in Joseph's life. The Lord was with him and caused everything that Joseph did to succeed. Despite God's apparent silence, Joseph believed that God was present. That's very clear as well. The most evident point, the most the, the best evidence that Joseph, despite God's silence, knew that God was present is in how he dealt with Potiphar's wife. So here's a woman who is nagging him, trying to seduce him. It says in verse 10, day after day. Okay. You've ever had somebody trying to seduce you day after day. But in our society, it is very easy to feel like you're being seduced day after day, or in some other department of life that like you are being tempted incessantly. And that was the case here. But what does he say to Potiphar's wife in verses 8 and 9? He refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he's put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph didn't presume from his hardship that God was absent. But we also discover Joseph didn't presume from his success. That he was entitled. You know, success can be more deadly than failure. How many people in this world believe the more successful they become, the more notoriety they accumulate, that the rules don't apply to them? Joseph, in a sense, is being set up to fall. He's just gaining more and more prominence. Rather than assume that his success led to privilege, he said, no. God is still the master of my life, and I'm not going to take the one thing that has not been entrusted to me in this house. That would be a wicked thing for me to do against God. See, God is silent, but Joseph knows he's there because the presence of God is what's guiding his every decision. Unlike his brother, we've looked at Reuben, we've looked at Simeon and Levi, we've looked at Judah, his eldest four brothers, and how they were driven by fear and sensuality and vengeance. But it seems that Joseph is driven by faith. And the promise that the Lord had made to his great-grandfather Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, the promise that God made to Abraham that in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We now see that promise beginning to take shape as Joseph is in Egypt. So God worked through Joseph's hardship. It's at this point that we say to ourselves, wait a minute, why can't God just work through my success? Why does God bless people through my suffering? Why can't God just bless people through my blessing? Why does hardship have to be the vehicle of all the great things that God's doing in this fallen world? Well, God is present in your hardship as the primary means of your maturity. That's, that's, why, that's why every Christian endures hardship. 
Look, we're in a fallen world. Everybody endures hardship, at least most people. There are a few that have pretty cozy lives. But most people endure hardship. But for the Christian, for the child of God, hardship is the very means by which God allows you to mature. It is the most effective tool by which God allows you to develop. It's through hardship. I'll show you. James, the Apostle James said this. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that testing, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Another word would be endurance. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The apostle Paul said a very similar thing in his letter to the Romans. We read this earlier to get today together. Romans from Romans chapter five, Paul said, he said, first of all, we rejoice in our reconciliation with God. Amen. But he said something more. He said, we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame. You see, that's the key. If you wonder and want to know why God allows and even orchestrates suffering for his children. It is because suffering in a fallen world, suffering is what drives you to hope. Without suffering, you will not have hope. Hope in the Bible is believing in completely what is going to happen someday. Hope in the Bible is, is putting, your, putting all of your investment into God's return. Hope in the Bible is expecting that God will restore you one day will restore humanity, will restore culture and our bodies and our souls. Hope is something that you have in God's future restoration, not in what's temporary. When you're doing great, when everything's going well for you, you don't have hope. You don't need it because you think you have everything right now. But hope is what puts our eyes off of the present, off of the temporal, off of everything that you're going to lose someday and on to what's coming on to the good things that God has promised when Jesus returns suffering drives you to hope that's why Joseph never gave up I think the reason why Joseph worked so hard despite the imprisonment despite the slavery is because Joseph was filled with hope it looks kind of juvenile in the beginning as a teenager when he says, hey, big brothers, guess, let me tell you about my dream. But there's something redemptive there. Joseph knew. Joseph knew that God was planning something. Probably didn't know what it was because at the moment he's stuck in a dungeon as a reward for good, honest work. But Joseph had hope. And I think that's why he was able to resist temptation. Look, hope is what keeps you from despair. Hope is what keeps you from becoming a cynical, bitter person. With hope, you can resist temptation. With hope, you can stay honest. With hope, you can work hard. It was Paul in Ephesians chapter 6 who said, look, when you render service, he was saying this, by the way, to servants, to people who were slaves, following Jesus Christ and couldn't get out of their slavery. Paul said to them, so they could have related to Joseph's story. And he said to them, 
rendering service, serve with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. See, Joseph, Joseph never once thought that Potiphar or anyone owed him anything. The reason he was able to keep his head up was he wasn't looking for his reward in the opinions and in the actions of others. That's why he didn't lose hope. So I'm encouraging you to resist the temptation to give up on God when he seems to be silent. Don't give up on God when he seems silent. I think what seems unbearable is the mystery of hardship. The mystery of not knowing what God is up to. What is he doing? Why is he letting this happen? Why did he let that thing happen? We want to know why. I think that's what's so excruciating in hardship is the mystery of not being let in on God's plans. I think sometimes we say to ourselves, if God would just explain, you know how I know we think this way because it's, I see it in everyone's prayer requests. You, you can tell a lot about what people believe by how they ask for prayer. Hey, pray that God will do one, two, three, A, B, C. Like, you know, like just kind of ordering God around. Pray that this exactly will happen in this way. Pray that the test will come back precisely like this. Pray that my boss will say this and afford me this. Sometimes we think, you know, if God would just explain to me, you know, lay it out, clarify what I'm about to suffer, why he's designed such suffering for me and reveal to me the outcomes and the benefits, then I'll endure it. Um, Hey, if you tell me, it's kind of like the way we sign up for a job or the way we make a financial investment. Hey, if you can explain to me how this works, what it's going to look like, what's your A plan, what's your B plan, what's your C plan if the first two fail, lay it all out, show me what the benefits are, then I will invest. We kind of treat God that way. Just tell me what you're doing. Show me the benefits for my suffering and then I'll be on board. I'm totally willing to endure anything if I can see what the outcome is going to be. So lay it on me right now, Lord. Right? So essentially what you're saying when you think that way is you just need more information. How about, you know, just the facts. I just need more information. Well, as somebody once said, you can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. Just read Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve, now they're not like, they were not like you and I at the moment. At that moment, they were perfect. They were glorious. If you and I could see the Adam and Eve that existed before the fall, we'd probably drop dead ourselves. They were so glorious and complete and whole. They were perfect, and yet they were not privy to all the information. Because they were creatures and not the creator, they weren't let in on every single fact that there was out there. And that's where Satan got them. Because he got them to doubt God's goodness. Did God really say, yada, yada, yada? Surely he didn't mean that. You know, he's really holding out on you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. And it's in that It's in that that they fell and chose sin. They wanted more information than their pay grade allowed. 
They wanted more truth than they as creatures were able to handle. And they couldn't handle it. And they fell. Desiring knowledge beyond their position. And so see, here's what I'm saying. At the heart of your demand to know all the details and your frustration that God isn't giving them to you, at the heart of all that is a desire to be in control. Have you ever noticed that, that the people in your life whose advice you desire the most are not blabbermouths that talk constantly and wear you out? Have you ever noticed that the people whose advice and perspective you value the most are very discerning about when to speak and when to be quiet? How many babblers, you know, the the person in the meeting, the person at the family dinner who won't shut up, right? Because, you know, intelligence, wisdom is like a river. The deeper it flows, the less noise it makes, someone once said. The people whose advice and counsel you most appreciate, haven't you noticed this, are sometimes silent. A good teacher, a good mentor, a good parent or boss knows how to use silence to get your attention. Refrains from speaking to let you figure things out on your own when that's what you need at the moment. Isn't always preaching at you, isn't always telling you what you need to do and what you should do, but sometimes just sits back in silence and out of love and wisdom helps you wrestle with the situation. And what, what's the result of that? You come out of it more mature. You've just learned something. You've just figured something out. Why do you deny God that privilege and that right? It is in his silence that God cultivates in you a longing to lean in, to press into him. It is in his silence that we wrestle with him and say, why won't you speak to me? But what happens? You're leaning in now. You're ready. You're waiting for him to talk. Maybe you were ignoring him completely when things were going well. But now that everything sucks, you're saying, hey, where are you, Lord? Where are you? And he doesn't say anything. And you lean in more. Lord, where are you? I am desperately in need of your wisdom. And now he's got you. Now you're paying attention. It's in that silence. It's in that silence that you cultivate, maybe for the first time, a desire to actually hear from him. Not just the facts, but him, a relationship. It's in his silence that, because we have an advantage that Joseph didn't have. We have his word in written form, and most of us know how to read. It's in his silence that God even draws us back to what he has already said. And to what he's already done. But you would rather just get more information from him. This is why Joseph's example is so rare. This is why Joseph's example and witness of steady faithfulness and integrity and hard work in suffering, right? In hardship is so rare, it's, it's almost unhuman. And it really reminds us of another person who was faithful in hardship. 
the Apostle Peter said of his Lord Jesus. When you do good and you suffer for it, and if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Hear that again? If you suffer for doing good and endure it, to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example. So that you might follow in his steps. Peter went on to write, When Jesus suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. See, Jesus on the cross endured the silence of God. This is profound. Jesus, the son of God, when he hung on a cross bearing the weight of human sin, cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, when Joseph was suffering and falsely accused and imprisoned, God hadn't hadn't deserted him. And I'm telling you, God has not deserted you. But when Jesus hung on the cross, God deserted him in that moment. God turned his back on his son because his son was unbearable to behold. Because Jesus took upon himself all the ugliness and injustice and depravity that you and I and the rest of the world have carried around with us for thousands and thousands of years. Jesus brought it all on himself. And in that moment, his heavenly father couldn't bear the sight of him. Jesus, in that moment, literally lost his father's presence. You remember, remember when I was telling you earlier in the day about that time that I just felt like I was cleaning up one person's mess after another. I was getting bitter. I was getting frustrated. Nobody seemed to care. I didn't feel like I was being appreciated and thanked for it. I remember telling an older brother in Christ how I felt. You know, I'm just frustrated. I'm getting tired and worn out from cleaning up other people's messes. And he said to me something I will never forget. He said, I know. I know it's been rough, but what if Jesus said to you, Hey, I know this is hard, but I want you to do it. I want you to do this. It sounds like a simple thing, but that totally changed my perspective because I immediately thought, well, of course, I mean, if my Lord wanted me to do it. If my Lord who suffered for me, who, 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 who took my sin upon himself and, and just entrusted himself to his heavenly father who judged justly. If Jesus is the ultimate Joseph, faithfulness and suffering, faithfulness for me, I would do anything for Jesus. Yeah, if Jesus wants me to take care of one mess after another, yeah, I'll do it. Absolutely. If Jesus is saying, please do this for me, you got it. And then I realize, whoa. What have I been doing all of this for? Who have, I, who have I been doing all of this for that I want to be appreciated and thanked for my hard work? I must have not been doing it for Jesus, I thought. But if you're doing it for Jesus, if Jesus impresses upon you 
that he was kicked out of the presence of his heavenly father for you so that you could be brought into God's presence. There is nothing on the planet. There is nothing in life you will be unwilling to do. If Jesus says to you, hey, I know this is going to be hard, but I want you to do it. Would you do it for me? And faith is responding, yes, Lord, I will do whatever you ask me to do. Even if you don't give me all the information, I'm on board. Our suffering, our hardship helps us better relate to Jesus. At the end of the day, that's, what's God, that's what God's doing. He has orchestrated hardships for you so that you can learn how to draw close to his son. It is in your suffering and hardship that you begin to relate to Jesus. That's why Jesus said it is so hard for a rich person to get into heaven. Because if you think you have everything you need, you will never draw close to Jesus. Jesus said, I have come to preach good news to the poor. It is through your suffering that God is drawing you close to his son. And that's how Jesus drew close to you. Through his suffering. And so he invites you to do the same. God's silence in our hardship does not mean that God is absent. So see your hardship. See it. And sometimes we can't. And so we need to help each other see. That's why we're a church and we're doing this Christianity thing together. Because we need each other. But see in your hardship, see that hardship is God's means to draw you closer to his son so that you can love and serve Jesus in all things. And he will give you hope. And that hope will lead to joy, even if you're in prison, even if you're left alone, even if you're jobless, even if you're falsely accused. And as we grow up in our faith, experiencing hope that leads to joy in our hardship. We come closer and closer to a day where you will stand before the Lord and he will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. Our God, we praise you for the witness of your servant, Joseph, who is such a picture of faithfulness, uh, though he was so mistreated. Father, we praise you for the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We are alive today. We have life and hope because our savior, Jesus Gave himself up for us. I pray, Father, that in our hardship, you would draw us closer to your son in whom we will see your goodness. In his name, Jesus Christ's name. Amen.